those of you who only listen to the intro and make a decision whether it's worth the investment of your time, I guarantee you today's book is. Most transformation efforts fail, and they fail for a huge reason because of the communication of the change throughout the organization. And what our guest talks about today, the fit. Now, that's not fitness in that you have the capabilities built for the successful change initiative. It's a totally different type of fitness. Our guest's work has led to an actionable theory of how to rapidly develop an organization fit to compete. That is an organization able to realign rapidly with ever-changing competitive demands. The approach he and his colleagues has developed is honest, collective, and public conversations backed by unconventional and counterintuitive wisdom. But it is successful, and it asks much of everyone involved, but delivers much, much more. It is a huge pleasure to welcome over a series of a couple of episodes, maybe three, to mirror the breakdown of the book. It is a huge pleasure to welcome the author of Fit to Compete, Why Honest Conversations About Your Company's Capabilities Are the Key to a Winning Strategy. Mike Beer, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for inviting me. I look forward to this discussion. Mike, I wear a pin to try and reflect the theme of each episode, and it was a difficult one. I was trying to find a jigsaw. I don't have a jigsaw pin anywhere. I found this pin, which is essentially, it's a mask, and the mask is broken open. And what I thought about the pin is that the inside doesn't reflect the outside. So the internal reality does not match the outside reality. And I thought about, well, that's kind of what Mike's getting at, is that this idea that the organization has these ambitions, external ambitions to match the changing competitive environment, but the internal language, the self-talk of the organization is totally out of sync. It's misaligned, as you talk about in the book. Maybe you'll take us through the theory of fitness first, and then we'll get stuck into the book. The term fitness here uh, reflects two things I wanted to communicate. One is less obvious, but the real factor is that the reason organizations do not implement effectively what they espouse, their strategy, their aims, their values, uh, is because they are not organized, managed, or led, short for other things that create the culture, to align with what they want to do. So this is an idea that's not new with me, although it's been reinforced time and time again in my work with organizations, both as a consultant and a scholar. So I'm sort of a scholar consultant, which is a combination of working with organizations to change them while also studying them and studying the change process itself. So that's one reality that most organizations are not aligned, do not fit the strategy that they want to, that they're espousing. The second meaning is a more the colloquial meaning of fit and fitness. In order to survive, we know that we go to the fitness room to work out so that we can deal with the reality of our physical decline over years and also the stresses and strains of what we live through, physical and psychological. So there is a, in, in that same sense, the notion of fitness applies to this organization. You're going to be more able 
to do what you want to do and survive, if you will, against all the changes that are going on, if you embody the notion of alignment, but also embody the notion of honest conversations about who we are and how we're really functioning compared to our espoused direction. Mike, I thought I'd just mention as well, because this is a very special series for me. I, I'm really honored to have your time, and I really wanted to make it special for you as well, because I thought there's three special forces behind the book, apart from you, right? So you're one, but the other two are your wife, who you dedicate the book to, the love of your life, and also then a friend, a colleague of past, which was Russell Eisenstadt. And I thought maybe you might want to say a word about those special forces in your life. By all means. Well, my wife passed away in 2016, and she was a special force in my life. I'm very sad on a day-to-day -day basis not to have her here. I met her, believe it or not, at a bachelor officer's dance when I was in the Air Force at a much younger age, obviously, right out of, out of college. I joined ROTC. I was stationed on a, on a, at Wright-Patterson, an R&D base, which, by the way, itself has a significance I'll come back to and met her, and she wasn't quite ready to hook up, but over time, I persisted, and, and she has been an inspiration in my life, building the family, which is incredibly important to me, being the lead in that, because I, my primary focus was on, on developing ideas and uh, working with organizations, and, but she was always a, a, a safe base to come to to talk about the issues, and she had wisdom that she, by the way, viewed to my grandchildren, my children, and in turn, my grandchildren. So I miss her every day. The other significance of being in a bachelor office is I was an ROTC, I was an officer in the R&D base, and then my interest in organization change came about in part by my experience of bureaucracy. I experienced it every day, started writing notes. I was going to write an expose on bureaucracy in the Air Force. I didn't. That was a good thing, probably. And But the inspiration for some of my work in change came from that, as it did in my 11 years of employment at Corning Incorporated, that hired me right out of my Ph.D. as a young Ph.D., because they wanted a behavioral, a behavioral scientist on their, on their human resource staff. And one thing led to another, but my life changed, and I became interested and dedicated my professional identity to change organizations for the better came from that, because one client after another, one manager or another who was managing a large business unit or function or or plant came from requests I had to help them. And so the wisdom that I have started there, but of course it's been developed over the years. I often think about how one's partner can be the the best source of unvarnished truth. <laughs> They'll give it to you whether you want it right or not. Yes, indeed. That was a place I, I would get it on a, on a regular basis. We'll talk about Russell in a moment, but I thought about a friend of ours, which is a friend of the show, Jim Dietert, and also Mike Tushman. But Jim told me that 
oh, you're going to love Mike Beer. He's a total rabble rouser. <laughs> <laughs> and he started doing this many, many yeah. years ago, which you've just explained now back in the in the Air Force days. Yeah, you want me also to mention Russell, which I want to make, I want to mention Russell Eisenstadt, who was a junior colleague of mine at the Harvard Business School. He didn't stay there after six or seven years he left. But Russ contributed greatly to my insights on organizations through the projects we worked on together. More import most importantly, uh, I got a call from the CEO and HR ex uh, chief human resource officer at Beckton Dickinson. And Beckton Dickinson came to me and said, Mike, we have great strategy. And they had no reason, I had no reason to doubt that. They were all former strategists at McKinsey and so on, Boston Consulting Group. But we can't execute the strategy effectively. We're having difficulty getting our products from the U.S. into Europe because those damn country managers, you know, they resist this. And of course, there are problems, legal problems and other problems in taking medical technology and putting it in another place. But that led to, can you help us become a company capable of effective execution of our strategy? That's, that was the headline. And we had to figure out a methodology. And Russ was part of creating this methodology of how to do that. They had a wonderful methodology for strategic planning. And they came out with all kinds of insights from that about what they should be doing outside to the outside world to the in the marketplace but they had no similar methodology nobody really does but we thought they ought to have a, a similar methodology or some methodology for learning whether they can execute and that's how the process got developed you know we said well what do you need you need a senior team that has clear about the strategy you need a uh, you need information. You need people below to bring up information that is about what is blocking the strategy execution. Also, what are the strengths that we want to leverage? How do we do that? And the methodology began to develop so that we can align the organization with strategy. But you need data for that. Well, the data from the outside is pretty well understood, not so inside organizations. So. That's how the methodology started. And of course, on the way to doing that, Russ was a key factor. He had a background in clinical psychology, by the way, and that gave me insights that I didn't have that he brought into understanding what we were hearing and how to deal with the problem of honest conversations because it turns out people are not so willing to be honest with people above them, even with people to on left and right of them who are, have other functions and activities that they need to need collaboration with. So that was the central problem. That's what we began to understand. And we recognized that the problem was not just an analytic problem, which is how we started. That is aligning the organization. Oh, let's tell us the barriers and then get senior management to, you know, draw some lines. No, no, there was an emotional component in this process very important emotional component because it people were quite emotional about what they knew but wasn't working and they couldn't 
tell people in the organ. Yeah, we we, st we said, well, go out and let's get the task force. I'll go into the method in a minute, but let's go get some other people to interview a hundred other. We didn't know what they were not. We we decided a hundred was about right based on experience, and find out. And turns out, people said, well, I've been trying to say this for quite some time, but I I haven't. Nobody's really asked me. Okay. So this is an opportunity, the idea that this would go to the senior team through a, a medium, which we called the task, which was the task force of key players who were on this team, who were interviewing them, and that there would be a direct conversation. This was not a survey. This is a conversation. And that turns out to be very important. And the fact that it's honest tested later by the fact that the senior team is willing to get up and talk about what they heard, the good, the bad, and sometimes the ugly. And they're always, not always, but most of the time, some uglies uh, that have to be mentioned uh, and have to be brought out. And the fact that that happens immediately increases trust. We know from the literature, and we know that now from our experience, an observation that when the CEO of the company and the senior team around him are willing to, to be vulnerable, to expose others, to tell others what makes them vulnerable. Think about ourselves. We are often very reluctant to share deeper things about ourselves and mistakes we may have made and so on for fear of embarrassment and fear of losing credibility or losing power, which is very important to CEOs and general managers. And, and the idea that they would be willing to make themselves vulnerable by saying, this is what we really don't know about and want to hear from you, and this is what we, are going to, what we have heard and what we're going to do about that because we heard it from you. That's that's the theory of, of this. There's got to be accountability of the senior team to the organization writ large. That is all the key people in the organization. Now, when I say all the people, I'm not saying from the CEO down to the production worker. I'm talking about every... This is another basic concept underlying the concept, the, the, the methodology and the thinking here. Organizations are made up of many subunit. There is a senior subunit, which is the CEO, the key people reporting to him, the key people reporting to them, the key people, maybe some key people reporting to them. Let's call it the extended leadership team, some 100, 200, depending on the size of the company, and regional key people who are also presumably on the senior team representatives. That's the large, that's the top unit. But then they are business units. They are functions and they are regions. Each of them also must be fit to compete. That is, they have to be aligned themselves around their own strategic direction. And sometimes that overlaps a lot with the corporate. And depending on the degree of innovation, uh, completely separately, maybe and different from the corporation. So so that's that's the overriding notion here, that we're doing this at, so 
most of what we've done has been at the top unit or business unit level or regional level. We, we've also applied it in a manufacturing plant, in a restaurant, as one of the cases in the book illustrates. We're only, in a restaurant, there are only 60 people. But the CEO, Peter Dunn of Steak and Shake at the time, said, if we're going to transform this into a high-service organization, we need to go to the operating level. The operating level has to look at whether they are aligned with the service guidelines that we have, partic- we have articulated. That's part of our strategy. That's key to getting customer back here and customer satisfaction. So we'll, it, it worked there as well. And, and so it, it, it applies to any social enterprise, any enterprise that is a social system that's trying to achieve something. It even applies to my church. And I see it every day or every week that we're not totally aligned either, okay? But we have to figure out how to do it. Now, it's a different metaphor when you're talking about a, a church versus a business organization. It's a voluntary organization. But it has limited resources, right? So the key is to do the most you can with your resources, not extend your resources beyond your ability to raise them. In the case of a church, it's contributions. So you better have an honest conversation with your congregants, they are your customers, to find out what's working and not working so that you can focus on what they want and not on other extraneous things that somebody may think is important. Because one of the characteristics of my church is there are a thousand flowers that bloom. No, in in any system, you can't let a thousand flowers bloom. You want to decide which ones are the ones that really make sense to grow. Okay, so because your customer, in this case congregants, or your real customer in a business, what do they want? And what is our strategy with regard to serving or achieving our enterprise? So whoever our customers are, whether they are corporate customers, you know, business customers, or whether they're individuals. So that's sort of an overriding view of of what we have kind of gleaned over years on really critical factors, some of it based on some other books I've written about unit-by-unit change, which is really what what I'm preaching here. Every unit has to be fit to come. I loved what you said, Mike, about the thousand flowers blooming because it, it kind of speaks to the very essence of the book is that you can't even propagate flowers until you deal with the soil, pick the weeds if necessary. And that's the difficult thing. If you look in the mirror, it's always very, very difficult because it mirrors so much of what we see in, say, digital transformations where it's much easier to apply digital lipstick and create this external kind of veneer on the outside without actually looking within. And this goes on an individual level, like you alluded to. Like one of the things I do is is coaching, executive coaching. And most people just want a to-do list. And I, I say, first, you, you got to, you know, as Aristotle said, know thyself, which means confronting these difficult truths, which is why I wear the pin, because what this is, is this head cracked open and it's ugly on the inside. And you're kind of going, it is going to be ugly. And what you talk about is, I love this term. This is one you got from Horning, a, a colleague there called McAvoy called it the emotional oil can. And you say this gave you this 
transformation of EPD. I'll let you fill in the gaps here from a culture of anger and blaming to one of positive and pro productive relationships, a community of shared purpose with a system of organizing, managing, and leading now fit to compete. I'll let you fill in the gaps there because I loved what you talked about here, the emotional oil can. Yeah, yeah, the emotional oil can idea came from Tom McAvoy, who was a new business unit, relatively new when he came to me and he said, by the way, and this is important about every leader that wants to make a great organization, I need help. Most managers do not know how to say, I need help. I need help from my people. I need help from maybe a coach, a consultant. But the idea that you want help was a critical part of the huge success of turning what was a pretty toxic culture and toxic organization to a more positive organization, which was, you know, at the end of two years, and I'll get to what caused that, but in the land for in the end at the end of about two years at a management meeting, Tom McAvoy, the general manager, by the way, to become the president of the company four years, five years later, based in part on the work that we did, the transformation of the electronic products division, which he senior management knew about because he told them what had happened and they it, they said, boy, this division is different from what it was before. So he presented me with an oil can with a big spout that, you know, you need the spout to get into the machinery, but he filled it with very good alcohol and said, called it the emotional oil can. And he presented me with this, I still have it, with the emotional oil can uh, with that title, and it was symbolic of the transformation. Now, what was the transformation? This is, again, a great example of how organizing, managing, and leading has to be aligned with what you're trying to do. So the electronic products division had been primarily developing resistors and capacitors components for the uh, requirement in the defense industry was reliability and technological superiority. So they had that, and they were very successful until budgets were cut for art for research and development in the U.S., and the market started going south, and they had to look a way to get more business. And they figured out that the growing call a television business, which required passive components, and the computer, this is the beginning of the computer industry, computer, old computer enterprise, the early days, that that required passive components that would aid, but one of the characteristics of both of those businesses is rapid change, because they're dealing with customers. You want a better television next year than you have this year. You need resistors and capacities to fit the essence of the computer system that you're developing, but that's going to change. So the characteristics of those passive components have to change. And the cost has to change. You can't charge what you did in the defense industry. So you've got to be much more effective and efficient. So this was not happening. That was the external signal. But if you started, and McAvoy also said, there is huge conflict between marketing, manufacturing, R&D, blah, blah, blah. 
and he said, and and they're they're basically having you know in fights, and I don't know, I, I'm not, how bad is it, and what what should I do about it if it's really bad? I we started interviewing people. We didn't have the methodology, but we went after the truth. We interviewed. That's what every consultant does. You know, we went after the truth, and the truth came out that yeah, there were definite wars going on, and mis lack of trust, lack of collaboration. Now you could say, well, let's get these people in one room and make a speech and tell them why they should collaborate, and the business is different, and that'll do it. No, it yet. We what well, we discovered all the decisions about new products look twelve new products were coming to the senior team in a once a month new product development meeting. And every and they get into a discussion about product A, B, and C and say, well, we don't know the detail. We better call the plant or we better call this marketing person. Well, why aren't those people here? Well, of course, if we all had them here, they would be 50 of them. That's too big. They were already 25 as it is. So why don't we just push these decisions down to some lower cross-functional teams? That was not a very common idea. It was one that Lawrence and Lorsch at Harvard had developed and wrote a book called Organizations and Environment, which was also aided us in thinking about this and in, and getting, so we created 12 new product development teams. Of course, there was the issue of, can they work together? So we need to support them and facilitate that a little bit. Well, who's going to lead them? Well, they said, well, the marketing people make sense because they're the outside seers. So... Well, let's make mark. Well, all those marketing people weren't good leaders and good managers. They were specialists. So huge problem. And of course, if they if we have twelve of these, and some of them may not work well, you need new ones. So how do we? Ideas are constantly for. Well, let's create something called a team on a potential new product, and get them to look at it. And and well, who's gonna? get all this together. Well, that's the senior team's role. The senior team is not to manage each function, each the manufacturing manager, that, and so on. It is to oversee this whole process. Of course, that was a challenge because it meant they had to keep their hands off the details and just review. So we said you can only interview them once. You can only review what they're doing once a quarter. You've got to stop the calls down the line to figure out what's going on so you can get in the middle of it. That's not your role. Well, that had to be, that's a huge change. So all this began to change through the structure and process that we set up for review, the guidelines that were enforced first by saying to them, hey, wait a minute, you're violating the guidelines we agreed to. They had agreed to the guidelines. That was part of the discussion of what would happen in the change. So, and they did largely because Tom McAvoy embraced these ideas immediately. Immediately. And, and they all then come, came to agree and then they realized that it was really working. And then a few other things that led also to some insights about honesty. Some of McAvoy's own behavior as a leader was embedded in some of these issues. When they got into a new product development, he talked technical. No, he didn't look at how well this this meeting is really working. And my God, we got too many people, and we're not. No, he didn't do that. So 
and he didn't quite inform, enforce all the goals and stretch goals that were necessary because he was an R&D guy. That was a, a new way to manage. So he had to make adaptation. And in a meeting, and, and I said, why don't we all communicate Go on every part of the organization and some of the corporate functions and communicate what we learn and what we're going to do so they understand the nature of how we're changing in a macro kind of vision and get to talk about it and discuss it. So we went, they went around and the, and the whole senior team has to be involved because they are a unit. So the whole senior team was involved in every of the, into the major communication at the headquarters. And this one got up and played a part. And, and we, and, and they agreed to go to all these locations. And at every location, I said to Tom, Tom, there's some stuff about you that's positive, but there's some stuff about you that's not. Would you want me to present, as part of the findings we had, do you want me to present those other elements? He said, yes. Huge. The general manager is opening up himself to what he, what part he has. No, he wasn't the whole thing, but it was part of it. So all that kind of led to the notion of this honest conversation, the power of it when you have a leader who already does it. So we didn't need the methodology. He, he, he embodied that part of, of the process personally and, and, took data and said, this all makes sense. Let's do it. Okay. So, and the team, the team got to discuss it and so on. So that, that all led to an emotional oil can. It's a great term. It's a great term. We're going to come back to the process. So people who are kind of going, give me the process. We'll get there. We're going to get there. We're going to take our time because there's brilliant case studies. And one of the things I really wanted, Mike, for our audience is that they realize this is not unique to your organization. This is in every organization. This is in every individual. Tolstoy once wrote that everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to change him or herself. It's very difficult to look in the mirror and change yourself, which is why McAvoy here, being able to be vulnerable, leads to change himself. Let's give another example, because you mentioned B.D. Beckton Dickinson earlier on, and I'm going to quote a little part here. Again, people will recognize the language here. They'll be able to look in the mirror inside their organization and go, it's not us. It, this is everywhere. This, these are really successful organizations. I'll let you fill in the names as well sir, here. So Mike says, Ludwig and Forlenza knew that company cultures don't change just because someone at the top wants them to. Instead, they knew that they would need to obtain commitment from BD's managers around the globe. Their new strategy would require the transformation of BD's entire system of organizing, managing, and leading. And as Gary Cohen, a member of the senior team put it, BD was already a fine athlete, but now it needed to become an Olympian, hence fitter. And Mike, an image that came to mind here is somebody who has this beautiful mansion of a house and the the world gets updated in some way. There's new forms of electricity, etc., and they need to get the house rewired. And that means pulling down the walls. It means pulling apart and rewiring the whole thing. And people go, oh, God, can I not just do it with the existing wiring? You can't. And that is one of the things about being fit for purpose or strategically fit. 
you need to actually go into the walls. You need to dig out the dirty holes here over there, rewire here. You need to sometimes lose people who are resisting that change as well. So I'll let you fill in the gaps here on BD, which is a remarkable case study. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for the metaphor. I, I think it it's very, very, very applicable to what it is we're talking about. So Beckton Dickinson was an operating company. It was excellent. It was very profitable in management and manufacturing syringes, uh, their primary business uh, for use with drugs and so on. Um, but it was also spreading geographically. And uh, the geographies had somewhat all kinds of this is a version of their earlier problem that got us involved in the first place. They that every country has different people with different needs, different medical presentations of those problems, and and each one of them has a legal system, some very strict in Europe, maybe less so in Asia, that has to be adhered to by the new product. And the way they were organized was that they were organized into businesses. There was a U.S., obviously there was a U.S. market, markets all the way around. Well, they had a, the U.S. president of that business became the global leader for the business around the world. And he set the strategy based, what do you think? Primarily, on his view of opportunities and threats in the U.S. market. Uh, implicitly, not because he said, well, that's got to be true of it. He just implicitly applied that logic. He also was biased to the U.S. market in thinking about allocation of resources. So people in the outlying regions, China, for example, or a anyone in Asia, Europe, and so on, you know, I had a somewhat different view of what that market, given its own legal system and its own presentation of medical problems and how they were dealt with, uh, dealt with those situations. And, of course, their voice was not in the strategic strategy-making process. And they, it, they had to be. And so, and moreover... Any new things in an operating business are not well accepted. There's a, one of the major tasks of a senior team is to allocate resources. So what was happening, all the resources, time and money, those are the resources that any company's got to deal with, were going to the operating side of the business and less, less it did not embrace easily what somebody in China might say is this is an innovation we require based on our knowledge in China. I'm just making up China. It could be any market, Japan, whatever. And that was difficult to do. So there was a need for how to get innovation started. So somebody in China, one of the representatives ultimately on the task force said, you know, I'm fighting bureaucracy all the time. I can't, that sounded familiar. I, I can't really, uh, get this going. I'm trying to, I'm going everywhere in a company and I can't get it going. 
So what were the underlying reasons? I think I spelled that out. One was the U.S. market was not separate from the U.S. president and, and his role as a global leader. So one of the things that Beckton Dickinson did is we're going to create a separate U.S. market leader, just like we have a Japan leader, a country, man a country manager for the U.S., get the global leader out of that role. He is a he or she is a global leader. Two, we need to have change. That means we have to change the strategic development process because the strategic development was the global leader. Yeah, with some communication with the countries, but he just here's the strategy, guys. Go do it. No, <laughs> and so how do we start this? How do we get the outer regions more involved in strategy? They have to have the first shot. They've got to say, this is what we need. Now the U.S. can say, this is what we need. And now we've got to weigh the, op the, you know, the advantages and disadvantages of which flowers we want to grow and what the value of those flowers are over time. And that is really a different conversation than here's our strategy. Now, does this make you, you guys agree? Yeah, you know, well, we'll adjust it a little bit. That that's not the same thing. So they change their planning process. They change their structure. They change the role of the senior team, and they created a special innovate innovation unit that would take real new, very new ideas, completely new. Because part of what they had done is they said we need more innovation. We've got to speed up the product development process, et cetera, et cetera, and make it different. So. They created a distinct unit to try to work on that in the company. So that this is just an oversight of many subtle changes. Well, what's the senior team going? How we do? This? Well, we're going to have a separate budget for innovation, and we're going to make sure that that budget is properly resourced, people and money, relative to our objectives of becoming more innovative. The senior team had met before they even got to us, They before they got into this process, they had met and decided that in order to grow in that, in that uh, business, they needed to move away from being an operation manager to really focus on growth, which meant more innovation, whether it was extensions of existing or only new. So they, so the budgeting process began to allow for innovation in a more explicit way. And the senior team had to think differently about what their role is. So there were a whole bunch of embedded in this overall picture, a lot of changes in roles, responsibilities, and relationships that underlie all changes in wiring systems. Well, the switch is over here. It's not over here anymore. Different role. Who's going to turn that on? Different role, different responsibilities. So that that's an oversight of some of the changes that were made. There were many more other less less critical changes, but they were all part of a system. So the system, the senior team had to change its role. The organizational structure had to change. The roles and responsibilities of the U.S. manager and the global leader had to be distinguished. New responsibilities, new accountabilities, new perspective, and probably some either development of those individuals or replacement of some individual. There is no change process 
that does not go on. There's a sorting process. You get people to try to play a role, and some of them succeed quite nicely. Others struggle and they need help, and others just don't get it or can't do it. So you've got to replace them. You may move them out of the organization, or you may find another job for them in the organization that fits who they can be. Uh, that is part of any change process. And that's the difficult part, right? It's the human change, the oil can. That's exactly right. And and each of the individual has to trust enough senior management to make those judgments and not walk out bitter about the whole thing, uh, which is what happens. You get antipathies and then you get resistance. And before they're out, you get resistant. Of course, if they resist enough, you, you'll be out, but by then the damage has already been done. So, because people know who's resisting and they're still around and you can't, you can't quite cope with it. So BD over the years has learned how to do that very well because embedded in developing this process and adhering to it in many, over four CEOs in many units, there was a subtle support for what they articulated they wanted to do as a culture. So, um, that that also oh it's like there's grit in the oil can that's been put in the engine that it won't be immediately visible or you won't even know where it's coming from but i i thought about that where jeff bezos talked about for example on amazon they have this value called or this process called disagree and commit which is you may disagree but you commit and you don't just go out in the hallway and then they start to poison the well for everyone else because that's actually what happens a lot. And I just wanted to highlight how far back you've been logging this, working on this, etc. Because there was an article I read back in, it's a 1990 HBR article that I'll link to in the show notes. And you said here, seeing how top-down programs generally failed, Russ, your friend, Russ Eisenstadt, Bert Spector, and yourself wrote a Harvard Business Review article called Why Change Programs Do Not Produce Change. And you conclude that regardless of how well-trained and motivated individuals are, they do they could not overcome a system that wasn't comprehensively aligned with the desired changes. And when it comes to systems, if they're not for you, they're against you. You say here the most successful transformations in the studies you've looked at used a unit by unit approach i wanted to highlight that unit by unit approach because we try to boil the ocean with this change but a unit by unit approach creates an exemplar of change perhaps yeah a, a unit can be a model so we got that idea from the research i did we did together uh on corporate transformations so we looked at a lot of transformations but we examined six companies close up. We interviewed a lot of people. We wrote cases on them and so on. And we had to step back and say, well, how successful was A, B, C, D, and E? And we used the logic and con of those cases and an examination of the cases and discussion to arrive at a rank order. The four or five who were lagging I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, but to some, this is basically what we found, was focused on programmatic change. So the big change that they were dealing with in the late 90s, in the 90s and late 90s by the time we wrote the book, was to embrace 
the Japanese ideas of quality. And so many of them started with quality programs. Okay, let's train everybody in quality. Let's, let's tell them what the Japanese are doing and say, this is what we have to do. And some of the CEOs gave speeches to that effect, the importance of quality, et cetera, et cetera. Replicating the, you know, talking about the wisdom that came out of Japan. And then they also sometimes, so training, creation of green belts, yellow belts, whatever the color was, you know, who were gurus in quality. And what we learned when we went around and talked to people was that the business unit leaders, they said, you know, there's nothing wrong with the quality ideas. In theory, we embrace them. But right now, for my unit, in this unit, we can't, uh, we're not at a point where this makes sense to do. We got other, more important, the priorities are kind of different for this unit. If so, I, we can imagine that we could do that here at a certain point and want to do it here, but that's not where we're focusing. So, and then we looked at, at the leader. The leader, uh, leading company had 100 plants worldwide, roughly, and they were successful in beginning to implant quality in each of them. They didn't do it programmatically. We talked to the head of manufacturing, one of the first interviews, and he said, let me tell you what I'm doing. I think of my 100 plants as a, as a dog sled. There's some, a leading dog and a lagging dog. Well, what I'm trying to do is get the idea, the idea, by the way, the ideas in that company for transforming how the plants were organized, managed, and led, okay, again, to the system, were a few outlier plant managers who had learned about theory why management, participative management, involvement, communication, all those things, and were applying them to the plants, to their plant, two or three. And, you know, they were kind of, these guys are crazy, but as long as they produce results, that's okay. Then senior management began to say, oh, my God, if we do what they're doing and, and, and maybe elaborate on it based on our learning from Japan and, and, and see that those are the ideas we need to implant in all of our on plants, let's build a couple of models. That is, let's create a couple of models. And those model plants, in some cases, they one case they were greenfield. I'm trying to remember now. Another case they were a transformational from an older to a newer, but they had the right leader and the right ideas. Then he told us, my job is to get the leading dogs moving faster and get the lagging dog to follow and close the gap in that, you know, the goddamn sled dog is too wide. So the idea of a sled dog and a transformation of the leaders was you got to have units that are exemplars of what you want to do, and you got the others to follow. Well, by the way, um, the CEO of ASDA in the UK at the time, um, Archie Norman, wrote read our book. And he said, oh, my God, I'm trying to transform ASDA into a completely different company. And by the way, the first thing he did is he shed all the businesses that were unrelated to the fundamental 
grocery store business he had to focus resources, but I also need to change them. I better start with one or two units. So he created a couple of stores that were model stores. And then he called me, he said, by the way, come over sometime and tell me, it, let me let me tell you what we're doing. It all was based on the book. Well, I went over there, by the way, they said, we need to move the dog sled faster. So why don't we get 20 more to do it? I said, 20, maybe too many. How many leaders do you have that are ready to embrace these ideas or if not, get them, find them? That's how many you can do at any one time. So that got them into an evolving system of selecting new leaders, positioning them in the, in the dog sled, if you will, to get those dogs moving faster behind the, the leading dog and, and dogs. And, and it took them five to six years to transform every store. Now, they did some other innovative things like creating a, a, a culture survey, uh, partly by CHR people interviewing and partly by, by, in, by, by survey. And they said to the, to the manager, this is not good. You've got to move it along. If they didn't move it, they were out. So the sorting process began and slowly, and they were the most, by every estimate, they were the most successful transformation in the UK in the 90s. And that worked there. And I think this unit-by-unit unit process is a fundamental idea that came out of the critical path to corporate renewal, the book we ultimately wrote on which the HBR was based, where the single message was programs do not work. Unit-by-unit unit change works. And you've got to have models, and you've got to go unit-by-unit, unit, and you've got to do what ASDA did, and so on and so forth. Uh, so... That's the critical idea that I think also underlies why I say every unit has to be fit to compete. You can do it at the corporate level, and that's great. You should. But don't assume business A, B, and C are going to are fundamentally aligned and fit to compete. And, and so at Beckton Dickinson, one of the other things they did was they encouraged business unit leaders to embrace the process and use it to build a better business. So they would go through that. They would report to the operating committee, their senior team. Well, what what did I discover? What did I what am I what do I have to change or what am I trying to change? And then of course you got to follow up on the change agenda. They did that with not every unit, but a lot of units. I almost got thrown out of Beckton Dickinson when I told them, first of all, you should require every leader to do it. And those who can, those who can't and won't, you have to replace. And I really think, actually, if you did that, and I mentioned this in the book at the end, Fit to Compete, you are creating a leadership. You're developing your leaders better than any training program. So we wrote an article in 2016 on, on the basis of the, the great training route. Jim, Jim Dieter loves that. He talked about that in our last one. That's how I first discovered your work was that brilliant article. Yeah, well, that article was based on a, on a, on. It began early on. We saw the fallacy of programmatic change, but we we also saw we ran into a business unit that was trying to be 
improve their management. And HR was about to launch a training program until a refugee from Beckton Dickinson came and he said, no, let's do Mike's strategic fitness process. So they went through it and they discovered that all the, all this, what I call the silent killers, most of them at least, were blocking their ability to manage, manage uh, a leadership development process because they were highly decentralized. There was no well-understood process of seeing leaders and managers with high potential as a resource for the company as opposed to for the unit. So when somebody got wanted somebody, they needed somebody, they would hold on to their good people and ship the, the less good people. So and, and and there was no way to sort through that process and put the leaders in the right place at the right time for their own development as general managers. And the problem was training was not going to chop, solve that problem. The seminal study on leadership development found that basically to be the case. You've got to put leaders in stretch situations that develop them because, as Peter Drucker said, Management effectiveness, leader effectiveness, the executive's effectiveness. He wrote a book on this. The executive leader, the effective executive leader, is learned through experience. And the experience has to be sequential in different places at the right time at the right place. As one manager, one manager at Honeywell, which is another company I worked with at some time earlier, said to me, he said, just imagine we transfer people from one plant, one one place to another, and we find, I found, he talked about his own personal meaning. What happens is those people who try to lead with their technical knowledge fail because they are not embracing and understanding the situation in their, they're going into the people situation, the strategic, the business imperatives, and and how they're organized and managed, my words, not his, to figure out what the best thing to do is. And the leaders who can do that are who are able to learn. That's the key ingredient. Leaders who are able to learn and want to learn and are willing to be humble enough, as, P as Tom McAvoy was, to say, I need help. Or implicitly go out after the help from their own people, from their own people. So, and by the way, as Ed Ludwig told me, when he took over a business unit, when he was still a business unit, before he, he had the SFP, we did SFP, and he said as soon as he told the organization that they were going to go through one and they were going to hear from him what he learned, the good, bad, and ugly, everybody, the, the word and of mouth, at the headquarters organization where he could hear it through individuals was, oh my God, they get, top management gets it. Well, they didn't get it yet. They hadn't gone through SFP, but they were going to get it because they were going to learn and they were seen as learning managers. Doesn't mean they have to be weak. No, no. Learning is not about weakness. Learning is about strength. You got to be secure enough to be humble. Ed Schein wrote a book about humble inquiry. You, you, you've got to be... So what we've tried to do in our work is in this one process is to create a mechanism for these wisdoms to be exercised. Uh, several of them, not every one of them, but to be exercised. And, and that is what 
I think strengthens the process. It is a, if you will, it's like a um, knife with multiple purposes and capability, you know, a lot of blades. We try to incorporate as many of the blades as we think we can based on what we know from our own research and experience and also confirmed by other people's research and wisdoms as well. So, but it is, but the strategic fitness process is not easy. It is a hard work and it is management work. The first thing we learned, people said to us, well, we can't spare our best people for this task force you're trying to create. They're too busy. Okay, no, we won't do the process unless you are willing to do that. It turns out you can, and it's not that demanding, actually. So, anyway, the, that's the that's the larger picture, the larger theory or theories that underlie the strategic plan. It's not just a method that we came up with, and that's it. It is robust in its underlying theory and ideas that have validity for the organization because people are saying, this is the problem here. That's valid. I don't care where it is. You don't have to prove it with a study, but we did a lot of studies that show that this is also true across many organizations, and we found it's true. And as, as you had mentioned earlier, it's the mask versus the underlying issues. The mask is the program, okay? We are adopting Japanese management quality principles. And we're going to create a quality program. That's the mass. Because many of the times we heard, the way we heard about these companies and got them into our sample was HR was saying, oh, we have, we got all these ideas about quality. Because when we got there, we found that wasn't true. Completely as they said it was. It was the aspiration. It was reflected in training and, you know, individual roles that were created for that but not in reality. And as we started talking to unit managers, they explained why. <clears throat> it's got to be aligned with the strategy at the right time at the right place. A couple of things came to mind, like loads of things were coming to mind. I was like, because I think, as you can see, metaphorically, and I was thinking about the, the race, the dogs, you know, I was thinking about these huskies on the track, etc. And then I was thinking, well, what the manager's job is not to be on the track, but they're almost like a pit stop. So like a Formula One race, and their job is to check in at certain pit, agreed pit stop stages to understand what's going on, what wheels need, no, on the dog, what type of nourishment the dog needs, which dogs maybe don't fit the track, which dogs need to be changed, etc. But also then the other kind of thing that came for, forward to me was that, and I see this in life in general, is that, when there is the long, hard, arduous route, people want the shortcut. So, for example, with the dogs, somebody will try and cheat and give them steroids or is trying to give them some type of cheese type of nourishment in order to get shortcut the process. But no matter what you do, if you shortcut the process, it's going to lead to pain later on. And that's one of the things I wanted to point out with your process is that it I, I understand this entirely as a CEO or a leader or an executive in charge of an organization. You don't want to go to all the elements of the organization and get feedback because of the long process that that takes. But otherwise, it's just lipstick on a pig. You're just going to lead to pain because you will get it done quickly. It will be task driven, but it will not be quality. There's no question 
that speed kills in organizational change just like it kills on the road. You can get certain things done quickly, fixing some problems that are obvious that everybody agrees we got to change this. Our IT system is anachronistic and, oh, we need to do something there or we've got to do this and that. We, we have a, a, a cost problem or whatever. we we got to put a bandage on that quickly because we're bleeding to death. The short-term view often arises because of the pressure for immediate performance, and that pressure exists everywhere. So I want to acknowledge it. It comes from shareholders. It comes from the marketplace. Oh, my God, we got to do something. Let's fix it. Well, the fix is different from the fundamental change. There you have a perspective of, of a future direction you want to go, and that leads us to have decided that you have to start with the senior team developing a direction. Either they have it or they need to develop it. And it's it created by the whole team, not by the marketing manager and the CEO and announced to everybody else. If you think about change, it's changing the tangibles. We got a problem. We better stop the bleeding. Okay. Makes sense. You don't want to do things that are weakening yourself. It's clear, it's our Mostly they're technical in nature. That is, they are sub subject to some new procedure, quick procedure. I call that a technical change as well to solve the problem. So in most conversa honest conversations, we create a fix-it list. That's different from the change in organizing, managing, and leading that we want to make. That's on the other side of this vertical. On the left side are tangible issues. On, a, on the inside, there are more intangible issues, often not discussed honestly or completely thought through. And those are long-term changes. They're not fixes. They're long-term changes that are going deeper into the organization and its behavior. And that has to include the behavior of the CEO, the behavior of the senior team, the behavior of our unit managers, the, the cultural aspects of the or what we often call culture, which, by the way, we often then turn around to create culture change. No, culture emerges from looking at what deeply is going on in the organization and not working. At you know, at 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 the electronic products division in Corning, it was the whole way in which they were organized and the lack of teams and the lack of ability to manage that kind of a process. That's the deeper issues. And what emerged was a cultural change in collaboration and a more collaborative spirit, higher trust. But it didn't start because we had a workshop on culture. By the way, uh, Vince Valenza, who was part of that team, who himself then carried on what Ed Ludwig at Beckton Dickinson, and he got out of the strategic fitness process, said, we also created a committee on culture. Boy, that didn't work at all. What worked is changing the way we manage, behaved, and function as an organization that made us, brought us together to make decisions about real matters that caused us to have to be more collaborative uh, and 
working better, whether it's on strategy development or whatever it might be. So that's the that's by the way on culture. So so anyway, the long term view is you change these deeper view, deeper things. They're not surface. They're not tangible. They're things you probably haven't thought about before you started with the fix it when you get when you develop the fix it list. You didn't think of all these things. That you do that now to get to the deeper things. One of the secrets is you have to suspend hierarchy because hierarchy will prevent you from learning what's under the mask because nobody's talking about what really is going on. Now, that is a difficult process and it involves, you know, threat, embarrassment, and threat potentially to people who are in leadership positions in the organization, have the power. To maybe not even bother. That's why most managers don't bother. They have the power, they have the resources, you know, and it's too hard to go through that emotional and a lot. But it's, by the way, time is not the problem. We can do a strategic fitness process in four to six weeks. It's not a long process. It does involve about four or five days of the senior management time, four days or something of, of the senior management time. If you think about the meetings they have to go to and the deliberations they have to do, and maybe a little bit more on the task forces part, but that's it. And and it's management work. This is not a program. This is stuff you should have been doing, you are doing. And now you're going, and, and so what this does is suspends hierarchy so the truth come out so at nokia which had fallen behind apple in the development of an iphone all of a sudden you know jobs had come up with the iphone to be early stages of the iphone they were nowhere near that in technology but there was no adjustment in the structure and processes of the organization to do that and when they started some teams working on it, there also was no communication. It was kind of a piecemeal thing. You know, we got to fix that. We got to fix that. We got to fix. But there was no communication between the task forces and senior managers. They, they would not honestly say, we got too many of these things. We can't do all of them at once. We can't get there by the time you think you need it. Because we don't have the proper allocation of resources or times or goals. All that has to fit together. I just wanted to show you a quote that I found. So this is from an INSEAD post-mortem. They said, they said, Nokia was a fearful emotional climate grounded in a culture of temperamental leaders and frightened middle managers scared of telling the truth. And that absolutely nails your point. By the way, the person who did some of those studies focused on the emotions or the case on Nokia. And it absolutely does fit. I, I, I saw the work. So um, it, it, no question about it. This is, you, you need emotional maturity. So I think that was what was blocking the change at Nokia. But also, they had to make some fundamental improvements in the way the matrix worked. They had a matrix, but it was not working. And But the case in Chapter 4 is a great example of that. They had to have a matrix. They kind of figured out maybe they did, but they didn't set it up properly. It wasn't working. It wasn't really a matrix. Okay. So so all of that had to be developed at Nokia and it wasn't, and everything was lagging behind. It's a complicated story like all these are, 
But the fundamental underlying truth is nobody suspended hierarchy to say, what the hell is going on? How are we doing in getting to where we need to go to compete with Apple? And the, the speed we needed at and our ability to get there with the resources we have, which may have led to a different decision. Maybe we, like they did, they ultimately sold the company, but it may not have. I, that's a, you need to make a deliberate decision about that. The selling of Nokia uh, was a forced by the circumstances. So you're not a master of your own fate. You use that mic as a as an organizational fit or a, a misfit, a, a, a failed fit. But then there's the fit of the values of the company as well. And here you cite the case study of J and J. Yes, J and J is a great company with a very lofty purpose, and with and for a long time. And it it lost some of that through a variety. First of all, they began to have a lot of a lot of recalls and things of that nature. And they were cited as one of the great examples of execution failure. Well, one of the main reasons was that people in the various manufacturing plants where they made the product, some of the recalls were based on quality issues and things of that nature that emanated primarily, but not entirely, from operations. And they, the people in the, in the, who were trying to work on the, and the people in the organization, in those plants, knew that this plant is not operating according to the values that Johnson and Johnson articulated, which were lofty values about responsibility and honesty and so forth. I don't, I don't have a verbal none for none here that I, I can remember. And they told everybody that this was a problem. That word never got to the top. It never got to anywhere that could do anything about it, kind of like my experience in the Air Force. I knew what the problems were. I can, couldn't talk to anybody about them. Nobody, I know who was in charge of that, how we would do that, whether it was, you know, I, I knew that it was not safe to do it because I had worked with it. Uh, I was working on, on, a, on a monitoring a contract in an electronics company for a job analysis and I went to a meeting there on the West Coast with a major. I was the lieutenant, and I said to the, the contractor, came up with a different way of doing it. I said, that's great. And the major disagreed. And I hung in there, but the major finally ultimately won the day. He's a major. I went to the, we had dinner at night. He said, I want to have dinner with you, Mike. And he said to me, by the way, lieutenant, I can court-martial you for what you did you disagree hierarchically with me. There is a live example of what hierarchy can do, okay? Now, I didn't get court-martialed. He, he didn't follow through. But it was kind of the, the emotional tone of where he was at, and that, that permeates organizations generally. I'm in charge. All I know about leadership is I make the decisions. You execute them. And in fact, at Beckman Dickinson, early on in the conversations with their CEO, Gil Martin, at the, t at the time, after we did a number of these SFPs, we came back and we said, well, they're going through it mechanically, but they're not really yet creating the partnership 
that they need to create the authentic partnership with the people who need to do the work, who need to create the change. And the CEO piped up and said, what do you mean by partnership? I, you know, I spent a lot of time in the military. Manage, leaders decide. Well, there is the, you know, there is the kind of ethos, if you look at the Wall Street Journal or any popular magazine, papers or magazines about leadership and management, heroes get the attention. But change is not about heroic change. The heroic part is accepting the truth and acting on it. That takes courage. And we lack that courage in too many organizations, and people are afraid to move to that stage as they were at, you know, should have done earlier at the right levels in J&J, where the quality problems were evident, where the CEO of Nokia should have stepped back and tried to understand what lower levels were trying to tell them, who were trying to execute some kind of a change process that wasn't quite right, okay? They didn't go about it the way I would, but the null, the fact that it wasn't going quite right, that the expectations were way too high for the resources, did not get to the top. So ultimately, all organizations, all senior teams have to reconcile their aspirations with resources. Money, that's easy to count. People, it's not just the number of people, but the commitment that people have to creating that change. Beautiful. Mike, I think we'll leave it on that for today. And I'll tee up everybody for part two is going to be getting into that SFP whole diagram on that, bring you through that, some examples of that. And for example, Agilent, a lady, Lynn Camp, who brought the change, the SFP process, uh, SFP process to Agilent and actually changed the organization as a result of that from a hierarchical structure to a different types of structure. So as Mike said, suspended structure as well. We can also talk about another session about the silent killers. Mike has another book on the way about that as well, Mike. I hope that's all right to let loose out there into the <laughs> into the ether. It's been a, an absolute pleasure talking to you. And this is the book that Mike we're referring to today. By the way, I just want to tell you, we've only got through the introduction of the book. I told you, Mike, we'd need more than one episode. <laughs> so, okay, this you're right. <laughs> <laughs> episode one and we didn't even talk about bp for example there's loads more we i have to just go okay we went off there i don't want to give away in the heart the entire book it's well worth a purchase it's fit for, to compete why honest conversations about your company's capabilities are the key to a winning strategy as we said we're going to talk about the process bring you through the entire diagram of that process and then one i love i have to say is the silent killers because those silent killers are present not just in organizations, but in society when you do speak truth to power. The the gainsayer often pays a price for that truth, and that should not be the way. We should be open to those conversations. Mike, for people who want to find you, where is the best place to find you? BeerMichael.com. It's my website, and uh, you can go and find all an overview of the book in there, there, there's all kinds of stuff in there. And, and of course, I'm also on the Harvard website, but go just to my own. It probably is a better place to organize what I'm doing and what I've done. And I'm a call away. Author of Fit to Compete, Part 1, Mike Beer, thank you for joining us. Aiden, thank you very much. 
for a wonderful session to talk about the ideas I've been living for 50 years.